back to another episode of I Love You Anyway. My name is Justin White. I've thought about changing it from time to time, but uh, for now that's what it is. And I think it's probably been something else in the past. Who knows? Maybe someday we shall. Um, So I had the great pleasure of seeing and talking to my dear old friend, Katya Crawford. Um, She and I met in the early 90s in San Francisco and hung out a lot for a period of time and then didn't see each other for many, many years. And um, we reconnected and stayed in touch recently and she happened to be near enough to me that it made sense to go see each other in person. So I did. I drove up to the Russian River, which is this beautiful uh, natural offering, one of many that California has. And I visited with Katya and her friend Melissa, who I also met in the early 90s in San Francisco. And they've been friends even longer than that. And we had a great day. Katya made a beautiful lunch. Um, We went canoeing. Did a little swimming. uh, Picked a couple blackberries. Drank a nice cup of coffee. And had the following conversation. Um, Not this one between the raven and the Tweety Bird but the one immediately following that. We can talk about it now if you like. Sure. Yeah. No, it's, um, I mean, I felt it. I felt it for a long time. You know, when I was 16, I think I was 15 or 16, I went to a dermatologist because I had this thing on my lip. And, um, it was precancerous, you know, white girl growing up in northern New Mexico, super fair skin on a farm, mm. right? So I was outside all the time. And he told me I had the skin of a 40 year old. And I was 15. And I yes. remember feeling like really shocked at that. Because 40 when you're 15 seems old, you know. Mm. Um, but there was, I just think this country has such an intense obsession with youth and with a particular idea of beauty and I'm at an age where so many people I know are um, doing things and even friends and students who are younger than I am who are modifying their bodies in ways really and to stay young yeah with like fillers and Botox and that sort of thing and and I I just I feel like you know, Georgie O'Keefe is just like the most amazing face to me, like all of those lines. And and the women that I love who are, are older, it's, um, I don't know, there's so much like beauty, I think, in a sense of a life that has been lived. But we have this such obsession. And we beat ourselves up about it. If we gain 10 pounds, we beat ourselves up. If we have gray hairs, we pull them, whatever. And so I made a conscious decision that when I turned 50, I would stop dyeing my hair. 
black hair was such a big part of my identity and it happened to be during COVID. And I, plus I, I also wanted to kind of shed the last four years or longer. And I felt like, um, that sort of energy was embodied or it was in my hair and Mm. it was the most amazing feeling when you did when you made that association and then cut it and then i couldn't stop touching my head i felt like i had a little puppy on top of my head it feels amazing it feels amazing yeah Yeah. so i was like i'm my own puppy (laughs) it (laughs) was what could you want yeah it was so it was so awesome i couldn't stop like just rubbing my head it was there that was even therapeutic you know yeah um and i thought i would just keep it at that like i i can't remember what i used jay's my husband's clippers i can't remember what length it was but tiny amount of hair on my head and i thought i would keep it like that for you know for a while until i was completely gray but then i i thought no i look really harsh and intense and um I'm going to grow it out. I'm going to have wild gray hair and be a wild old lady. Yeah. Did you get reactions from people like that made you feel like you were, you looked intense or did you look intense to yourself? Well, the interesting thing is that, um, in, in teaching I'm on zoom all the, I was on zoom, like gosh, seven, eight hours a day. It was insane. And you're looking at yourself like it's unhealthy to look at yourself that much. But I would see that when I was concentrating or, or resp- listening to a student, like I'd get this intense furrow between my eyes. And I was like, I look really mean, you know, where. And so it made me aware of my facial expressions much more so. But the not having any hair made me look pretty extreme. Mm-hmm. And did your yeah. students comment on it or? or? I told them I was all going to do it. I said, I'm just going to warn you. And I did a little fun like survey in class on Zoom. Should I shave my head? Should I not? I think like 78% said yes. And then I had this student that's so amazing. And she she also shaved her head. At the same time that you did? Uh, two weeks in later solidarity? or so. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was pretty cool. And actually when I had cancer the second time and went through chemo, I shaved my head before it all fell out, and I had a, a couple of, of friends. One of my dearest friends' daughters shaved her head at the same time wow. in sort of solidarity. It was very cool. That's amazing. So, but I, when I did lose my hair with chemotherapy, I had a lot of fun with wigs and things like that. <laughs> wigs are extraordinarily uncomfortable. I don't know how Dolly did it all those years. I don't know how anyone could have... Do something over their scalp for that and any, your scalp isn't like this like beautiful pristine skin it's right. like got a rash on it or uh, it's like and you're wearing this hot like hot net, net on top Oof. yeah no thank you yeah. but did you feel like you did you feel better in a wig did you feel like it gave you um confidence or i remember I the first day that i went to go teach going to school i was like I was terrified. Like, if you ju- I just felt so vulnerable because you don't just lose your hair. You lose eyebrows and eyelashes. Yeah, I just felt naked. I was walking into the school naked. And I remember thinking, I am just like, this is just crazy. This feel, I feel so vulnerable. But everybody was so kind and compassionate and adorable. My students were so supportive. But sometimes I would wear a wig for drama, you know, like... Um, I had this 
electric red wig that I loved. It was like superhero, mm-hmm. more like a Halloween wig. And I liked to wear that on special days if we were having a review or something. And I remember one time one of my students complaining about something being hard. And I just grabbed my wig and threw it on the table. <laughs> and I was like, what was that? Yeah. Um, but it was more out of humor. It wasn't. Yeah. But so, it's pretty good visual aid. For, yeah. For it was Yeah, a prop. The wigs were a prop. But no, I wore beanies mostly. Because mm-hmm. I started it in, I think, August and through the winter. So it was chilly, you know. So uh, did you? You said you had cancer twice. Did you have to do chemo tw- both times, or just the? No, the first time I it was um, like six surgeries or something, and mm. then um, the second time when it had come back, they because I did just was like I'm not going to do chemo the first time, and I did some test which I can't remember the name of it. Um, that basically said it would increase my life expectancy by two percent if I did chemo or something. That's like. I feel really conflicted about all of this stuff because the, actually the type of chemotherapy that I had comes from a tree in Africa. So that sort of made me strangely happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt bad. Like it's so toxic and radiation is so toxic and it's all going into my body. And then I'm peeing it out into the river, which is then used for drinking water downstream. Mm. And I just felt like I should be carrying around this like charcoal bucket or something right. to pee into Your own personal or, filter. Yeah, or filter or something like mm. that. And um and even now the drugs that I have to take now, I I just I feel very conflicted about it because it is so many people are going through chemotherapy and radiation and all of these things. All of the drugs that were on antidepressants and hormone blockers and birth control pills and everything. And it all goes into our water stream in the end. In, and then in measurable amounts. Yes. It's and it's insane incredible. what it has done to the ecology of rivers and streams. And so I feel really conflicted about that. Yeah, but you have to take them, right? Yeah, I I, I didn't for a few years. And um, my oncologist was very unhappy with me and said, listen, your, your life expectancy would increase by 60% if you took these wow, hormone blockers. And... Um, at the time, I was like, listen, I'm taking, you know, have I had a lot of conversations with myself. I was like, taking care of my mom. I didn't want to die before her. And um, and then you think about all the people that you're connected to and realize that it isn't just your life. It's a it's an interconnected community that you are a part of. So, um, so yeah, I started taking the hormone blockers. Wow. Where their own little personal hell exists, but I won't yeah. get into that. <laughs> but that really was what compelled you, was the feeling that you needed to stick around for your yeah. mom and just for the the network that you yeah. belong to? Yeah. I mean, I and I also, I really love life, but I also feel like my mom used to say, when we were kids even, if I die tomorrow, I just want you to know I've had an extraordinary life. And I've always felt that way. Like, I am so lucky. I didn't expect to make it to 50. And I did. So I feel like every minute is just sort of this, you know, gift. Um, And then the first time that I got cancer, that was a bit of a shock. But in many ways, it was one of the most important things, life-changing and important things that ever 
happened to me in, in terms of my view on life, I think. It was, uh, you know, I, I said I had all these surgeries and I was teaching full time. I had a tenure track position. Um, but I, for the first time in my life, I felt really comfortable saying no. And that was like this light bulb went off. I was like, I have to have other life-threatening disease to be able to say no and not feel guilty about it like right. to things you know but it was incredibly liberating what you what you're passionate about and what you care about becomes crystal clear I just I found that so incredible and then I won this design competition with um, a couple of friends of mine and we got to go to France and build this garden in France and uh, Jay, my husband, he was instrumental in that because he's just this amazing builder and he was sort of the project manager and primary builder and all, like made it happen, you know. And it was it was like the dreamiest year, that whole year of um, insanity. It was, it was one of the best years of my life, I think. Wow, that sounds yeah. really cool. Yeah, it sounds was like amazing. To win the contest and then to go actually build it, like make it come true. Make it come true. And it was in this, um, I mean, it was really like a fairyland. There's this uh, chateau, which is, it was like a princess castle. And then like there are a few things when we were talking earlier today that make me really, really, really happy, like my favorite things to do. And um, one of them is like I love to kind of, Maybe stock is a harsh word, but I love to stock art that is in the natural sort of environment. And this chateau had works by Andy Goles, like amazing artists. There was this one installation, these trees that were hundreds of years old, and they were probably 200 or 300 feet tall. They were so incredible. And there was this installation that were um, like fireflies that, that was all solar, these little heartbeats in the trees. And... We would just walk around at night and look at all the amazing art on this, you know, I think it was like 40 acres of, of land French, in the French Loire Valley, oh you know, <laughs> with the Loire River. I mean, it was like, it was like being in a fairy tale. Yeah, I, that's some of the most incredible, you know, scenery I've seen ever is in that. Yeah, it's amazing. Right in that region. And then you, you'll just drive by like a, church from the 1400s it's still standing <laughs> i know it's crazy yeah. Or a yeah castle on the hill it was incredible um so all right so you alluded early on to the four years that you were shaving off uh i think you said something about it you know you wanted to shed those those four years oh yeah yeah of, is that the cancer and and your mom's passing or no is that the, no, I mean, no. So when I got cancer, so many people, I mean, there's so many people who've had cancer. It's like, okay, this is a battle and you're going to war. And I never felt like that. I felt like my body made it and it was in negotiation. So that's just part of me. But I think it was more the Trump. It was definitely the Trump. Oh, that four years. Okay. Administration. Oh, yeah. And it was that in conjunction with what's happening around the world because I mean ever since we were born there have been like major issues right like major yeah but I felt like everything came to a head and it was in our face and the pandemic like this 
the balance was so um, off and is still so off that I just felt this sense of like despair. Like I felt like it was the end of, of time. So the end of the world, the end of even possibly thinking that everything would be okay, which is very easy, I think, for a lot of people to do. Everything's going to be okay. Right. But it's actually not going to be okay. It's only going to be okay if you're okay with it not being okay. Yeah. So or, I've or just able felt... able to avoid the, the impacts yeah. of how not okay it is. Yeah, this just like real sense of despair. I had been to Australia the year before. Jay and I had gone to Australia, which was when the fires were happening, and billions of animals died in the fire and we saw it you know we saw it and it was just the stories of the forest screaming um literally the animals in the forest Mm, screaming that's the worst thing i can imagine the smoke was so intense that um and the carbon that it has changed the weather pattern in australia all of these things and then you know floods fires drought all of these sorts of extremes and this massive inability for humans who speak the same friggin' language to not be able to communicate mm-hmm. or understand or listen or any of that. It's, right. It was just, my heart just hurt. Um, but, you know, as Melissa said earlier, I am an optimist, but I think I'm a different kind of optimist now. It's like... Um, I make a concerted effort to see beauty and harness beauty every single day. And I think the most important thing as a human is to be kind and patient. But, yeah, I think we're totally fucked. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my. Well, I, I, I certainly understand that viewpoint and when you have as kind a heart as you do uh and any you know sensitivity to other people's pain or to to suffering of anything it's a really it can be a really harsh existence um in spite i mean i like that you said harness beauty because it because it's sort of what you have to do you have to make it work for you yeah you know not in any sort of uh oppressive or destructive way but just just to proactively acknowledge your presence in it or your harmony with yeah. it in order to feel fueled by it and absolutely connected again like this rooster do you hear this yeah, oh yeah i love like this. i love that rooster that rooster has been crowing. crowing ever since we got here and it's like that is to me a sound of life like He's like, I'm the king. Yeah, he's just <laughs> calling know? out to the I'm universe. Calling out to the universe. Yeah. I absolutely love it. But does he to, start early? Not so early. He's a little bit of a late. Well, I haven't been starting early on this trip, so. Um, but it goes into the evening, you know, and it's just like it's like a call of life, or maybe you know, maybe it's a warning sign or whatever. But I feel like um, I actually feel like my mom saw the world in such a particular way and made me see it through a particular lens and the small things you have to pay attention to it's like there is so much beauty wherever you look as long as you pay attention Mm -hmm. you know get off your device or out of your screen or out of your house and pay attention there's life everywhere and there's beauty everywhere 
but I even find um, beauty in in the mundane. You know, like I love it when looking at utility wires and the clouds, and it's like the clouds are dancing on top of them, or you know, yeah, little things like that. Yeah, your your Instagram is one of the few things that keeps me even slightly interested in social media because <laughs> I love that little capturings that you get of the sky and the water and the reflections daily of light walks. and yeah I love yeah. I mean that's a great use of that platform well I use it as um I use Instagram as a visual journal of my life and I think part of it comes from a little bit of fear of getting Alzheimer's you know mm. um but it's a it's a visual record kind of a visual and it does help me like I can look back and say oh that's when I did that competition it was in 2016 and had yeah. that group of you know I love that I for, would have no way to keep track of that stuff if not for yeah that running record yeah and I have thousands of photos on my phone and computer and everything else but the ones on Instagram are clearly the ones that I've chosen or have spoken to me or something like that so I think they are a good depiction yeah of well, and you're not doing it in any kind of catered way. Like it's not, or at least it doesn't seem like it to me. It's yeah. you're not you're not like saying like, "Ooh, I'm gonna frame this just so so that yeah, I'll get this many likes." Oh yeah, I don't pay attention to that any of that. But it, it, it's clear that you don't. That's why I like it. But the I've got all my people in Australia too, um, and it's almost like a, a visual way of like a daily check-in yeah you know they know what you're doing the family on the other side
Can you talk about your Australian roots? Yeah. So my mom, my mom's Australian. She died in January, but she, um, she left when she was pretty, pretty young and moved to London. Did you know that she used to, her job was interviewing movie stars? I don't know if yeah. I did know that. Yeah. Maybe you told me that once. Yeah. That's awesome. She was a reporter, like a pub- publicist and reporter, and she interviewed Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren. Wow. In yeah. London? All in London? In London with the Rank Organization. And um, and when she had had enough of that, she always had a rule, like, I don't want a job for more than three years in her youth, you know? So she... Um, went to Greece to write and met my dad and my dad had just um he'd he was 27 I think and he had a bestseller in Finland and sold the movie rights to his first book and bought a Mercedes he's obsessed with cars okay and so they met fell in love the coup happened this was in Crete got married the coup happened and they moved to Ireland where my brother was born to escape the coup specifically yeah, or maybe the coup was before that. I think my dad was feeling a little bit, he said this recently, like he was feeling a little bit of the expat blues. Like, um, And I think what he meant by that is that people were always running away from something and there were, there were a lot of drugs involved and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. So they, and he wanted to show his new son to his family who were in Southern California. So they took the Mercedes and the, little baby boy, my brother, on the ship to New York and drove the Mercedes across the country <laughs> to San Francisco. Holy smokes. And they lived in um, in the Sunset, I guess, district. What an epic journey. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, with a little tiny baby. And, um, and my mom had no interest in coming to the United States at all. Um, she, she wasn't, she just had no interest. But I mean, she was sort of interested in New York because of the theater. Um, Did she was she averse to coming? Did she, she was, dislike it here, or, or th- imagine that she would? She she thought that she would never live. She never became a citizen, so she lived in the United States longer than any other place. But she never became. She just a never citizen. wanted to claim no. it. No, but so they moved to San Francisco, and then that's of course right when the civil rights movement is happening, and the and it was. She's like, this country is insane. Yeah. Everywhere you go, there's battle. So they sold the Mercedes and bought a VW van and drove to meet some friends in New Mexico who said, you'll love it here. And they get there. And my mom said, I love this. It's like Greece, but without the ocean. And it was just a little village, uh, a little uh, Spanish, Hispanic village. And um, I think my dad said they had two thousand dollars left from the movie money and they bought a little piece of land nice. and we built her they built our house the house was like a member of the family it grew along with us so um they rented a house first but um the early part of my childhood it, we had a a two-room house and then a three-room house and we had a big um it had electricity and running water a big pump in the kitchen, you know, like a hand pump. Yeah. And um, we had a solar shower, but mostly I think we just heated up some water on the, I mean, I was tiny, on the stove and had little kind of 
baths on the kitchen floor. Um, and then my brother and I later had a little room that we shared in the back, but we made the house, um, my mom and dad, and we helped too. I mean, we started doing things were really little, um, out of Adobe, the traditional, my dad speaks a bunch of languages, Spanish being one of them. So he connected with the elders in the community and learned, you know, learned how to make an Adobe house. Thank God my mom was a part of it because he did get a hernia. So she laid a lot of the bricks, but also made the windows much larger in the house. Than he would have. Than he would have. Yeah. Nice choice. Yeah. So, um, and, and packed mud floor in the living room and a brick floor in the kitchen. And, um, I was telling you this earlier when it rained Mm -hmm. because it had a flat roof and it was traditional. So you have like, um, vigas, which are, you know, big round logs that run across, um, wall to wall. And then, um, planks, wood planks, and then tar paper, and then layers of dirt, tar paper, dirt. Anyway, it would leak. And we would have to take out every pot in the house and set it out. And the house was like a musical instrument when it rained. That's amazing. Um, since then, the house has been re-roofed and there's panel on parts of it. And But the house kind of grew with us. So I think when I was uh, seven and my brother was nine, they did an addition and we shared a bigger room. And then my parents had their own room. And, Still um, Adobe? Mm-hmm. Just yeah. Extended kept it. going. And we got a bathroom. Nice. Indoor plumbing. So this you, is this is sort of so funny. So you grew up with that? Sorry. Go we ahead. grew up with an outhouse. Um, and this is sort of funny. We There were a handful of Anglo families in the village and not particularly well received by the local community. Most of the Anglos were hippies. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think of my parents, they were about 10 to 15 years older than the other families, but they were much more sort of like bohemian or beatnik or something. You know, they weren't so into the whole hippie thing, but they were interested in living off the land and getting away from, you know, the crazy world. Um, But I so desperately wanted to be Hispanic and Spanish, actually, that because in northern New Mexico, where I grew up, and things are changing a little bit now, but the locals called themselves Spanish, not Hispanic, not Chicano, not just Mm. Spanish. And um, I desperately wanted to be Spanish. And it was a pretty Catholic community. And also there's Catholic Church, Presbyterian, and um, the Seventh-day Adventist. But everyone had religion, religion except for the Anglos, you know? So... My friends that were Spanish, I was pretty um, sure that uh, I was going to go to hell because I didn't, you know, believe in God. But I also felt like we were just so dirty because we had our outhouses. Like we were so dirty that we had to go pee and poop outside of the house. Whereas I didn't think that my friends pooped or farted, or anything. They were so clean that they were allowed to have their bathrooms in the house. Really? That's yeah. what you thought? Yeah. That's how that's it was I, laid out? That's how it was, yeah. Those filthy yeah. kids, you got to go out, out yeah. back? Yeah, you have wow. to go out back. And that was, when, do you remember learning that that, that was wasn't in the my, case? That was in my journal when I was seven, so. Wow. Um, I don't know. And your parents never thought to explain? Like, I don't know if I discussed it with them. 
but I was worried. I tried to I tried to save all of our souls. I said, "Listen, I'm going to go to Sunday school and pray for us all." For your family? <laughs> yeah. That's for my amazing. Family. Yeah. That, that doesn't surprise me somehow. You, yeah. You took on the I'd come home singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> My parents would just shake their head. So did they, I mean, so you were off the grid, so to speak, right? For those first years anyway. you were. I mean, sort of off the grid. Yeah, I mean, we had electricity um, that was gridded, but, um, and a telephone and that sort of thing. But we lived off the land. I mean, my parents were farmers and and writers. That was their income. And... um, yeah, we did not have a TV. And even though it was sort of like this, you know, seemed sort of free lifestyle, my dad's German, and it was very regimented, um, which I really appreciate because, like, I don't know, we had breakfast, lunch, dinner at the same time every single day. My brother and I had our chores which were, you know, chopping wood and hauling water and feeding the chickens and milking the goats and all those things. Um, we went to bed at a stupid early time, my brother and I, 7 o'clock, even in the summertime when it was light outside. Really? And I remember saying, Mom, like, why can't we stay up later? She goes, I don't care what you do as long as you don't bother us. Like, that she was said that? like, yeah, she said it. And she was, I mean, the most amazing mom. She would write us poems and bring us slices of apple, you know, and <laughs> read to us at night and everything else. But they wanted their time to be adults away from the kids. And so we and had. And they were straight about that right from the start. And there was, there was never any flexibility. Like, mm. you didn't even try and push boundaries because. They just didn't, yeah. So we went to bed early for so they could have their three hours together by themselves without kids. That's so interesting. Yeah. Do you, I mean, did you resent that at the time or or do you now? It was pretty weird. I mean, my friends would stay up way later. Yeah. Um, but I think I was a pretty well-rested child, which... It's nice. Because you were chopping wood during the <laughs> yeah. day and needed, a, needed to sleep. yeah. And we had, you know, mandatory naps or quiet time or whatever. And so, yeah, I think it's... And that was all your dad? He was just laying the law and your mom was like, you know, live your life. Yeah, so she she believed in in discipline and rules and all that sort of stuff. But she, she just exuded so much enthusiasm and love for life and her children and everything else that didn't feel like a... A punishment. It was just the way it was. He had rules about when people could call, when they could come over. It was very, you know, we listened to NPR every single night at 530 and had dinner at six. Wow. And my mom and I would make the dinner and uh, and then my brother and dad would do the dishes okay. or we'd take turns doing dishes or whatever. Yeah, they were pretty gendered roles, actually. Yeah. Not so much the chopping wood and that sort of thing, but the kitchen area was pretty gendered. Yeah. And did you resent that? Not until later. Yeah. Not until I realized what you, f- <laughs> yeah, what it was all about. But you yeah. probably did enjoy that time with your mom, I would imagine. Yeah, I adored her. Together. We were just yeah, I just yeah, I mean and even time with my dad, like he would show us um my first 
real car. I had a Subaru when I went off, got a little Subaru when I went off to college, but then I came back. I hated that Subaru <laughs> and sold it and bought um, bought an F85 Oldsmobile, which was this from our, our uh, friends of ours that worked on the farm. And it had a 351 engine. It was Holy a massive. Shit. And uh, Anthony actually and helped me put racing stripes on it. I feel like I remember seeing that car, or at least pictures of it. Pictures of it, yeah. yeah. But I loved that car. and um, But he, you know, he taught us very young how to change a tire, how to change. I mean, back then, you could actually fix your own car. You yeah. Know? It was... it was A car um, like that. Yeah. And he was really good at teaching us. He made most of the furniture in the house and all that sort of stuff. And so I loved that about him, that he, he showed us how to fix stuff and make stuff you know um and my mom was just this you know she could do anything and everything except she was not good mechanically like yeah what was her childhood like she um she talked really fondly about her childhood um her mother my grandmother was totally amazing an amazing woman like just so ahead of her time and my mom spent most of her childhood in boarding school actually which she loved Mm. because her mom wanted to travel around the world and um they were really really close but i tell you my grandmother alice like just a really really powerful woman tiny like five two with these like intense green eyes and she lived, going to Casula, where she lived, which was a suburb of Sydney, was one of my favorite, favorite memories because I never met her second husband or my grandfather, but her second husband, Wolf, was a scientist, but he designed the house using the golden section, and mm. it was on 12 acres, and then he had a laboratory, and he died of cancer when he was quite young. Um, and I think... I think his daughter was 16 and his son was 14 or something. But beautiful laboratory as well, which um, when he died, my grandmother turned into a modern art gallery. Wow. And she also, I mean, she was amazing. She went to India when she was 80 and meditated for a month on an, at an ashram. She wore all like Indian saris and things. And she had a huge fan club of young gay men that just adored her. She was like, her house never looked adored, but old like an old person's house you know it was just full of fresh flowers and modern art and and things and suburbia had sort of built up around it so it was sort of like a wildlife refuge and Mm. when i would go my mom and i would go together for a month in the winter time and see her younger sister zita who i'm very 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 close with um she's 16 years younger than my mom and my grandmother. So it'd be four women of four different generations on this property wow. with all this wildlife because suburbia had sort of built in and it was just, I mean, you would see goannas and wallabies and amazing bird life and every kind of spider that will kill you in two seconds. Right. And, you know, yeah. all that stuff. And it was incredible. And just amazing food, amazing art. And you went regularly like every winter or most winters no we never growing up we never had any money um Mm. my family didn't and 
uh, my grandmother would usually help us to come over. But so it was about every three years we would go for a month. It's a big trip to take. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's far. But I feel extraordinarily close to that. It was a major part of your... Growing mm-hmm. up and just, yeah, you know, yeah. That's, a, that's so cool. Yeah. I've yeah. since I was a kid, I've thought about Australia just mainly because of the animals. I just yeah. want to, I want to be around that diversity of weirdness. It's amazing, yeah, it's so amazing. I got to see a blue, I think it's a blue tongue lizard the last time I was there. They're rare, no, they're not rare, but they're totally rare to me. I was like, yeah. this lizard has a blue tongue, <laughs> <It's> super cool. <laughs> His neck is growing out bigger and bigger. You know, and just the birds. Oh, it's so amazing. But they have so many things that will kill you. Like yeah, that. the most, but right? Here they we have, the, have yeah, the most the most. venomous spiders, the most venomous snakes. Yeah, the they most like venomous everything, except for people. Here, people will kill you. Right. In Australia, spiders and snakes will kill you. talk about your your work so i teach landscape architecture um graduate but we have a lot of undergraduate classes too and most of the people that are drawn to landscape architecture have this sense of the world is out of whack or out of balance so they've got a good sense of sort of landscape um literacy but earlier on the the kind of core courses you just get this idea that there's a lack of curiosity. I think like fostering curiosity from a young age is the most important thing and how to how to ask questions, you know, and not just curiosity like, oh, I'll Google it. Fuck Google. Yeah. Like just go outside and listen and feel and look and like use all of your senses. Like very interested in the idea of embodied knowledge and realizing that as a person we are in collaboration with plants and with animals and with the earth beneath our feet and all of these things and i'm not saying that like a hippie i'm saying that like a punk rock ninja or something (laughs) you know it's like your place like understanding our place in the world of things there's a massive disconnection and when you make that connection, I think life becomes meaningful, period. Mm. 
Because if it's all about the self and the person and the identity and this and that and whatever else, it's like that is that is like a breeding ground for misery. I agree. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's where there's just it's all wrapped up in judgment and comparison and you yeah. know value finding value in arbitrary you know yeah. valueless things. Not understanding what's important to and. I mean, sometimes when I speak like this, I feel like, oh, you're coming from such a place of privilege, you know, you've been lucky your whole life. But I also feel like I recognize that. But I also feel like we were dirt, dirt poor growing up. Mm -hmm. Literally. Actually, we were dirt rich because we were farmers, you know? Yeah. Um, But But, it was... But did you ever feel like you were wanting for something? Or did you, I mean, did you compare yourself to your friends and classmates and think like I wish I had the fancy backpack or shoes or whatever no what I wished for was that the school had uniforms I have an obsession with uniforms because it's not like I even knew what I wanted but I just knew I stuck out like crazy you know you wanted to just be and I didn't have a tv so like commercials and stuff you know Mm. um I wanted a uniform I'm still pretty obsessed with the idea (laughs) of a uniform that's awesome yeah. Does that come through in your drawings and it certainly comes through in my wardrobe. Like everything <laughs> everything yeah. is everything like stripes is stripes on the pants of everything. Everything is black, pretty much. Occasional spot of color. And kind of um pockets are essential. Uh-huh. Things that wrap I like. So yeah, it's come through. It's kind of like I wear like and I think too doing Taekwondo, I loved putting on the uniform. You yeah. Know? Yeah, there's something special about that yeah. process, and yeah. yeah, you did taekwondo for a long time, right? You yeah. still sort of you still practice. I stopped right before the pandemic, or actually midway, um, when everything sort of got shut down. But I was doing it up until then. Nice. Um, Aren't you a black belt? Yeah, second degree black belt. But I I've reached this point. Let's talk about aging again. <laughs> I've reached this point where I feel like I'm actually getting worse, not better. <laughs> You've you been know? downgraded like, to first degree yeah, again? Yeah. Or less. Pretty, pretty, yeah, like maybe I'm a white belt again. Oh, no. I don't know. I mean, even just, I also have a, an element of fear. So I've, I have pretty severe um, osteoporosis. And so I just don't break boards anymore because that could, I could just, my foot could shatter. Just snap a bone. Yeah, yeah. snap. But um, like even jumping. Like, I used to love to jump, and yeah. now I'm just like, I want my feet on the ground. So things like it's that. It's going to hurt if you jump yeah. up, like, you know. Or I see people land just slightly off, mm. and they are in a boot for three months, right. you know. And so um, I think I'm going to seek something gentler, like Qigong or Tai Chi. I don't know, something that doesn't require sparring, breaking boards. and Yeah. Well, even uh, Aikido would be oh, a lot yeah. gentler. You yeah. Know, you can still do the rolls and yeah. the physical part of it. And there is sparring, but it's not the same. It's more not like... the same, yeah. I just think it's it's not combat. It's it's sort of yeah. like understanding the movement, the flow of movement. Yeah. And... But I, lo- I love that. I mean, I love the the martial art. I love martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um. As a, I think it's beautiful, like the forms, the philosophies behind them, all of that. But I do feel very nonviolent. Um, yeah. But I like to, 
Yeah, that's what kept me from doing anything. Like I, I, my brother took taekwondo for a little bit um, from a couple of sadistic teachers who, oh, who yeah. used to kind of That'll punish the kids. And yeah. So he stopped after a little while, maybe yellow belt. And um, I need you to get comfortable, Justin. Oh, I'm good. I'm Are good. you sure? Yep. Okay. I'm just, just readjusting. All right. Uh, thank you. Um, but I, yeah, I never wanted to punch or I loved the idea of it. I loved watching movies about it. I just, yeah. you know, obsessed with Bruce Lee as a kid. And well, we watched a bunch together. Yeah. In San Francisco. That's right. <laughs> I think we had a Bruce Lee marathon. That's awesome. I'm glad you remember that. That's yeah. Uh, but we took a futon up to the rooftop and drug the massive TV up there. On your, at the Oak Street house? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's mm-hmm. amazing yeah that's coming back to me but should we really watch bruce lee like back to back i was Which, obsessed yeah yeah how could you not be the dude mm-hmm. is just a mir- he's the miracle specimen of a human oh, I know. he's like a, I know. just unbelievable to watch so and then i would secretly watch with melissa she would watch them with me um, Van Damme movies, which were so bad. I remember you being uh, a Van Damme fan. It's yeah. <laughs> awesome. You know, there's a Van Damme. Did I send you that photo ever of Van Damme State Park or something? No, it's I don't same, think so. I took a picture thinking of you, and I probably still have it somewhere, an actual film print. I'll, get, I'll <laughs> give it to you if I find it. Awesome. Um, yeah, cause, and I think you sent me a picture of Bruce Lee's grave. In C- is it Seattle? Is that where you... So Gosh, would he have reason remember. to be there? Anyway, yeah, I, the martial arts are amazing. I don't like beating people up, and I don't want to get beaten up. But I love the, I love everything else about it. Me too, and I I mean I think that the reason why I did get into it first, you know, was to defend myself. But in the beginning, yeah, because um, I fought a lot um, until I was about fifteen years old. And physical fights mm-hmm. with that because you were you had to defend yourself as the yeah. outsider yeah and i was also my friend jesse who was like well she still is a blondie but um very 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 blonde i was her bodyguard mm. yeah. um, and you you were taller than most most of your most of everyone that, in yeah. the whole world <laughs> yeah. did that did that also draw more compa- it did, yeah. but there was there was there was is amazing to like think about space. You know that's what I do. I like design space, right? So to think about this these sort of spaces of equality or inequality or or whatever, or spaces that you think are benign are so not benign for some people. But I was good at basketball, and so that was my space. That was my space where I could relax. Okay. And not worry about anything. Yeah. Um, bathrooms, on the other hand, you know, you learn how to hold your pee for eight hours. Oh um, you know, it's like it's like this mental map of sort of safety and danger. Yeah. And people move their way that way their entire lives. I mean, I think some people think about it less than others, but... For example, I assigned a parking lot assignment to my students because the United States is covered in parking lots and it's a single-use space and it's covered in asphalt and it's ridiculous. And like it's it could, usually empty. Yeah, it could be an amazing space. Like it could also accommodate cars, cars, but it could also be like a pollinator garden or or collect and clean runoff and 
you know, solar solar panels it and could be all of those shade things, right? All of those things, right? So I gave them this parking lot assignment and um, there was one guy in that studio, it was a really tall guy, 6'2 or 6'3, white guy. And he went out into the parking lot at night and recorded the movement. And I said to him, I was like, you know, good for you. But you, you realize that like none of the women would have ever even considered that. Yeah. Or maybe from like documenting the parking lot from inside a building, looking out of it or something yeah, like that, right. you know? With the friend. But uh, yeah, but the way that we map the movement around our cities, everything else. Same thing. I go to conferences and we're having dinner and the women are talking about which route to get home or sharing an Uber or whatever else. And yeah. and clearly the reality for black people in the United States is very different. Mm. And that sort of cognitive map of feeling safe or persecuted or vulnerable or whatever else, super fascinating to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Because it's imprinted so early and mm-hmm. you, and then you have to sort of adapt to new spaces and relate it to what you know, like what you've learned along the yeah. way. But you don't you don't know how it's going to be in a new space. You have to right. you have to remap it each time. Yeah. And I think, too, one of the things that so many of us are out of touch with is this idea of intuition which is not some kind of hokey thing. It comes from experience and and being in touch with your kind of senses, you know. But I feel like if I follow my intuition or I'm in touch with it, you can tell which places. It's like are not safe or unwell or... Yeah, you can feel it. Yeah, you can feel it. Um, But we're really good at shutting that out because we move through our world so much of the time in a state of distraction through our being you know, plugged in or thinking about the destination instead of the point A to point yeah. B and that space in between yeah. that is where we spend so much of our lives is that space in between. Um, but we have yeah. a like insanely achievement-based society and yeah. it's all about your status and, and what you can prove you've done. Yeah, you know, um, my Aunt Zita, who I've mentioned, my mom's sister, she... Um, she told me something when I was pretty young and it stuck with me. And I'm so glad she mentioned it, but I, I still, it's hard not to fall in, into that. She said that, you know, in the United States, ambition is considered a, uh, a good quality. Right, like, a virtue. Yeah, virtue, ambition. She said, but it's actually really toxic and it's a disease. Um. How old were you when she said that? I think about 12 or so. Wow. Yeah. That's a major, that's a huge. Yeah, and it sort of uh, stuck with me. And I felt really lucky because my my parents were never like, go to college for this or be this or do that or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, They were very much follow your, follow your curiosity, your interest, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a pretty nice gift for a parent yeah, to give a kid. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I, that's what I wanted. That's all I wanted was just to have the freedom to be curious and explore on my own and, you know, be supported in that exploration. Yeah. Rather than held back from it. Yeah. But what a great thing to tell your niece, like to give them a little inside information, you know, yeah. like, hey, just keep this in mind as you go. 
The, yeah. the ambition is not really the, the, the end, you know, that's not what makes the experience yeah. uh, important. No, she's a very evolved human. That's cool. And yeah. And super hip too. She's uh she's also a graffiti artist and does woodcuts and Nice. And still lives in Australia in the yeah, same Yeah, in Western Australia. We talk about once once a week, every couple of weeks oh, on that's WhatsApp. Great. That's what I love technology for. Yeah. Is sailing across the ocean. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Free yeah. free connectedness forever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the probably the best the best use of it. And photographs and audio and like there's a lot of good shit you can do with technology. Yeah, there certainly is. It's just one portal through which you can also lose yourself and use it to you know, abuse it, use it to check out and so many yeah. millions of ways. Yeah. But that's the human that's not the technology's fault. It's the human's fault. It's the human brain and its, you know, need to be uh, I know. I wonder if we even know what it's doing to us in a way. Like I'm sure there are studies on it and whatever else. If it does make people feel more connected or if it does make people feel disconnected and inferior and I think it's the latter. I think the the results are starting to come in and that's like isolation and and, uh, yeah, alienation. I think all of that's on the rise. Yeah, Yeah, because it's not, it it only makes sense. That's, there's, it's not a real, no matter how you try to justify that being a connection, you know, it is for some, if that's the only way you can speak to someone, then definitely use it, you know? Yeah. But if it's your only the only way you're connecting to anyone in the world, then I think you're missing a much bigger part of what we're here for. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the the hardest things with the pandemic has been touch. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something I really, really missed was being able to hug people. Like I think that human touch and connection is, I don't know, essential. It is. Yeah. And you get it once you're missing it. Yeah. You just like feel how essential it is. Yeah.
Do you want to talk a bit about your mom and that experience of? Sure. Like, do we have time? How are yeah, we doing? We're 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 good. If you're okay. good, if you're up for yeah. still talking. Well, um, yeah. So my mom died in January, and um, but she had Alzheimer's for ten years or so, and it's sort of interesting because when I was young, she said to me, if I lose my mind, you need to take me out into the pasture and shoot me in the head like you would an injured horse. And I said, Mom, I would not shoot a horse. And she said, but you'd shoot your own mother? You know, very dramatic. And I said, no, you can't ask a daughter to do that. And, um, but I never thought she would lose her mind because she was so sharp and she never lost her spirit that's for sure i mean her spirit was with her all the way to the very end and um but alzheimer's is like the most it's not the most there are plenty of awful diseases but it's really insidious and it like like all diseases i think it affects so much more than that person it's the family as well um to watch the person you love most in the world just transform and disappear. But luckily we always had like such a strong kind of spiritual connection. I mean, she would just say, darling, we're just the same person. You know, I would say, mom, do you think she'd say, of course, we're just the same person. <laughs> you know, she was so, That's beautiful. and she never lost her sense of humor. But what I found interesting is that I wanted to have a baby years and years and years ago, but I couldn't. And my brother wanted a baby too, but he couldn't. And so um, I just find it strange the way the world works because we became like our mom's mom mom and dad. Uh, We became like, she was like a little girl. Yeah. You know? Um, And people say, don't compare folks with Alzheimer's to kids. Why not? Because there are so many things that are so similar, like if they've eaten or not, or had a nap, or bedtime, or all of those sorts help of things. Cleaning, help, help yeah, uh, help cleaning, yeah, cleaning, getting of stuff. dressed, all of those sorts of things. Yep. Um, and the innocence, like there's this level of innocence that also sort of comes back, and this like beauty and wonder at the world, and wow. you know, it's just totally amazing. But she she had me laughing pretty much all the way to the end. I mean, there were times that were just so incredibly uh, brutally hard as well when she was paranoid. Because I just thought Alzheimer's was about losing your memory and repeating yourself. But it's like this whole other world gets fabricated while the one you know is disappearing. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's very... It's very intense. But my brother and I became incredibly close. And um, and it was kind of like we shared her, you know. We shared our grief. Because there's this thing of like, it's not exactly anticipation grief. Because you know there's no getting better from it. But it's like prolonged grief where you, there's the diagnosis or the realization. And then... 10 years of just slippage you know or slipping and transforming so and stages 10 and, years. and everything else whereas 
with children, you see the opposite. Right. If you're lucky. Yeah. Right. right. Um, so, but my God, she just, my brother and I made a decision too that we weren't going to hide her or hide Alzheimer's. And we, we took her everywhere. He would take her to like in the road to Colorado to pick up a kayak and, um, you know, and he would play Frank Sinatra the whole way because that's what she loved. She loved and, to sing, right? Oh, yes. yeah. She never stopped singing. And that's the funny thing is that she, we used to both say, both of us were dying to be musical. And neither of us were like totally tone. I don't know if I'm tone deaf. I know I can't sing in key at all, <laughs> at all. And um, in fact, I don't even know the right words to describe how I can't sing, <laughs> right. except that we used to say, both of us used to say that um, when we sang, birds would fall from the sky or, you know, that we would give years off our life to be able to sing, etc. We were both dying to sing. But once she, she got Alzheimer's, she never stopped singing. She sang constantly and it was the most adorable thing, you know? I watched a lot of those videos yeah. you shared and it's just amazing. You can just yeah. see the light in her eyes and she's, wherever she is, she's happy and at, yeah, at peace, singing, at, at least yeah. in those moments. Yeah, and there were a lot of them. But we would take her to restaurants, to cafes, and she would, you know, fall in love with the waiter and say oh my god you're so divine i'm just gonna take you home with us and you know but she was always uninhibited always yeah, uninhibited. yeah. i but, wonder how yeah. much it's interesting to think about the degree to which that would come out if you already were like that yeah and then you're totally uninhibited like, yeah does it, like is it even that much of an escalation or is it just like yeah slight? it was just a slight escalation i mean certain things i think she would have thought and told me later and not at the time. Like, I'll give you an example. Um, my dad was going on a book tour or, or something. And um, he said, can, can Rosemary, you know, stay with you? And I said, yeah, sure. I'm going to have to take her to class with me, you know. So she stayed with me. And um, I took her to class. And it was a, th a theory seminar. And I thought, well, she's going to be there. So maybe what we'll do is go to the Botanic Garden and I'll talk about landscape literacy, you know. Mm -hmm. So we went to the Botanic Garden and I have all the students surrounding me. And there are probably 15 students and um, a lot of international students. And she has always really, really, really loved dark skin. She's obsessed. So she was like the international students were missing their families and she was just hugging them and kissing them and telling them how beautiful they were and how lucky they were to have dark skin and, you know, all this stuff. And they were soaking up the affection and I didn't, you know, I didn't, that didn't bother me. But so I have them all in a circle and I'm like, look around you. I want you to look around you and then we'll have a discussion about what we see. Like, can you see the systems at play? Can you, can you see which, you know, plants are happy? Where's the pollinator? You know, all these sort of things. Like, let's look at the systems at play in this, in this garden, even though it's, you know, humanly constructed. And, you know, my mom is looking around and she's really looking, you know, she's mm -hmm. looking at everything. And I said, okay, um, does anyone want to talk about what they're seeing and and my mom's hand goes like shooting up you know First. and she's waving it like total jazz hands <laughs> right, you know right. like me me pick me, me, pick me. Yeah, pick me. <laughs> and i said yes mom and she says well the trees are full of vaginas <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's amazing she uh, met like the place where a branch had 
yeah or knots you know the knots in the trees Yeah, 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 yeah yeah so same thing and you know all the students start laughing and she is laughing i mean she just thinks she's the best thing you know <laughs> like uh, not only did i see it i'm hilarious That's sort amazing. of you know she brought the house down she brought the house down and then everyone you know we're walking every the students would like point to me and say yeah, uh, yeah. and i don't think those students will ever see a tree the same again but she For the also rest of used their lives. yeah and then as as the disease um, progressed we would be walking along the road in dixon and you know, the trees, particularly elms, um, the way they come up out of the ground um, and they make sort of a V. She would always think that they looked like women that were planted um, upside, down. upside down with their fancy shoes on that were dancing oh, yeah. in the clouds, like their club, their night nightclub shoes dancing oh, in the clouds. And um, we're walking along and there's like a stick coming out of one of the crotches of the tree and she yells, rape (laughs) running up to the tree and pulls it out you know that's Um, amazing what how old was she at that at that point she was probably 80 or something that's amazing no 85 something but she also just had these like these really wonderful one-liners that sort of like don't be a bastard be a shining star and um you know there's so many quotable things that she has said and and she always said that she um she couldn't tolerate people that didn't have a sense of the ridiculous that took themselves too seriously didn't have a sense of humor any of that sort of stuff but she had like this amazing amazing zest for life which was with her until the end she was there was a couple of years where she was pretty suicidal on a regular basis but it was drama. I think she just didn't know how to be in the world with her mind. Mm-hmm. Like even her ways she was going to commit suicide were fantastic. Like she would say, I'm going to wedge a knife into the adobe and hurl myself into it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you know? Or my favorite one is that she was going to lather herself in butter and go up to the mesa and wait for the coyotes. Holy shit. Um, that's intense. Yeah. Or she would say, I drowned myself in the river, but we're having a fucking drought. <laughs> um, no, there were always, yeah, very, you know. And she would just declare that at, like, throughout the day? Yeah. Or just occasionally so there, to, yeah. for dramatic effect? or there was, there was a time. No, it wasn't. I mean, I think she was legitimate? really desperate in the moment. Hmm. But even in her desperation, she was very creative. Yeah. She was a storyteller. Yeah. Um, but I would call her. There was a couple period year period there where I would call her on average six times a day because I could Just talk her down. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, or my dad would call me and put her on the phone. So. And that was at the outset of Alzheimer's, and she was just trying to incorporate yeah. the new reality. Yeah, reality. And she never admitted she had Alzheimer's. Never the whole time? Nope. Um, wow. I would talk to her about it. She, oh, I'm just losing my memory. Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm fine. You know, it's just... And sometimes she would say, oh, I just feel unanchored. Hmm. You know, untethered. But she, but when she would go in and out of sort of coherence, or how I don't know how to best describe it, but when she seemed to... I mean, were there episodes or was it was it just sort of a gradual? Yeah, it was pretty gradual. But I mean, she went through a period where she didn't recognize me. Mm-hmm. 
And it must but have been she, really hard. But she knew I was hers, you know. She didn't recognize me as her daughter. Um, but, but she, she knew she had some She knew we had a connection. Okay. And then years later, she would, I mean, and that would happen for a minute. And then she would just be like, where's my daughter? Where's my girl? Where's my girl? Hmm. Um, and so it was like sort of, it was very unpredictable in and out. As you know, she had sundowners when the sun would go down, she would get very fretful about the putting the chickens away or this or that or whatever. And you just learn, you just turn on all the lights and blast Frank Sinatra and dance for her, you mm. know. Um, she died singing Frank Sinatra, which is amazing. Really? Like, yeah. So I had called, you know, the hardest thing is that I hadn't seen her in close to a year. Not really. Um, one day I jumped the fence where she was staying. She was living in a house with these amazing caregivers um, in Albuquerque. It was like a 10-minute drive from me. And they just had three bedrooms for residents. Nice. And the two of them, a gorgeous couple, lots of grandkids, tons of dogs, like perfect, That's you know? Amazing. But what was very funny, I'll tell you this funny story and then I'll get back to that. But um, they're very religious. Carmen and Curtis are very, very religious. And so we walk in for the first time and my mom takes it all in. She's like looking all around. And she said, well... I thought there was just one Jesus, but apparently there are thousands, you know? <laughs> and then there was a big life-size Jesus painting right before going into her bedroom. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, she would say, hello, Jesus, on the way to her bedroom. And then towards the end, it was like, hello, boy. And she'd blow him a kiss and walk into her bedroom. Whoa. Like she couldn't even tell that it was a painting, you know? Hello, boy. She's flirting with Jesus. And... um but yeah, so I called her, I called her the day before she died, and she wasn't feeling so well. So I sang her a song, and she finished it. And then the next day, I sent it, after teaching, I sent a text to Carmen and Curtis, and I said, how's she feeling today? And, um, and they said, good. She has, uh, she's in there singing, and she's got you know we got her up she's had breakfast etc we'll set the phone up and give you a call and they called 15 minutes later and she was dead Whoa. so she had been singing right up to right up the to the moment. time she died wow. yeah yeah oh amazing that's wild i knew she was gonna die too i i burst into tears the night before and said to jay she's going and um that morning a friend had sent me a, a photograph of her holding me when I was a baby. And, um, and I wrote about it in my journal. Like I feel it, you know, I feel wow. this. you and knew, I, right. You knew it was, I knew it was coming. And plus, you know how, I don't know. Um, the day after Christmas, I went up to Dixon and was, I stay in her studio, which is this beautiful space. And I had been reading her journals and cleaning up and stuff. I mm -hmm. just felt her so strongly. And then three days before she died, my phone made this video of her. And um, I mean, phones probably do that and I probably ignore it. But this was the first video that I was like, what? And I pressed play and it was little snippets of photographs and video that I had taken of her uh, over the years. Right. And the last one was when 
she was looking so desperate through the glass and I was on the other side of the glass, mm. you know, and I was like, yeah, this is, it's almost like she has died and then she died Wow. that, that day. So anyway, I just, I mean, I feel like my heart goes out to anyone who loves someone with Alzheimer's or to anyone who has Alzheimer's because life is hard enough. It's true. I I mean, I've I've been lucky at least so far. Both my parents are still living and and healthy, and their minds are healthy as far as yeah. as far as we know. But I know so many people who have parents with Alzheimer's, and um, but something I heard actually just days ago. I I follow this conscious channel mm. who um he can tap into anybody if he knows their name and uh he's clear audience so he hears he hears through that person what their true self is actually oh, wow. feeling um so but just just recently on a, in a workshop that i was in he there's a q a section after the guides sort of lecture through him yeah uh a woman asks a question about i think it was her mother who had alzheimer's and he, he was able to tune into her and what she said is that, I mean, I thought it was amazing. She said, I'm, I'm actually fine. Like m most of the time, she said, I'm only in my body like 20% of the time. Mm. And, and the rest of the time I'm in this other world and it's, it's fine. I'm comfortable. Yeah. I'm happy. I'm, you know, I'm actually really entertained and in, interested in it. Yeah. Um, so it's not, she wasn't feeling it as this huge loss. She still had confusion and, and episodes where it was, you know, mm -hmm. frustrating for sure. But, um, but her general, she had general peace of mind. Yeah. Even with the disease. So yeah, I don't know if that's helpful to hear just knowing that some, I mean, I don't know what kind of peace your mom, if she was sort of denying that it, that's what it was. She may have never had a comfort with, yeah. with it. I don't know. But. Well, she had a lot of joy and I mean, she, it was almost like um, extremes of both, like extreme joy. And I mean, she was so funny and so affectionate and adorable and everything else. Um, but when it was bad, it was really bad, mm. you know, um, but I think she had more joy than, but I wasn't with her 24 hours. I was when yeah. in the summertime or on the weekends and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. No, I've often wondered about that. And I've heard similar things, actually, about like checking out and then checking back in, mm -hmm. checking out, checking back in. It's like, that's cool. I want to check yeah, out. I know. I know. <laughs> I in some ways, yeah. So I just feel like it's much, it's a lot. It's often harder on the caretaker than than the person with Alzheimer's. A lot of caretakers die before the person with Alzheimer's because it can be so brutal. It's like, yeah. Yeah, and exhausting. Yeah, it just seems like it would be so exhausting because there's yeah. a lot of repeating yourself. and. Yeah, and yeah, but I, I feel like um, as a country too, we're just not prepared. There was, a, there was an article in The Atlantic recently about the elderly and how this country is just like betrayed the elderly. And I completely feel that not only that, the kind of feel like this country has betrayed the youth, the homeless, yeah. like so many of, of the yeah. citizens, yeah, everybody who everybody, yeah. isn't wealthy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But even the wealthy, like, 
Yeah, Even the not. wealthy. Like, <clears throat> they in some way have been betrayed because there's no, like, what about the value? And not, I'm not saying that all wealthy people are assholes, but the the values of, like, I don't know, finding meaning in, in life outside of wealth. Yeah. And realizing that your wealth often means somebody else's life is hell. Mm-hmm. And having the power to, like, stabilize or make, like, really... You know, yeah, it's hard to understand. I mean, yeah, there certainly there are people who grew up with different values and don't they don't actually see what they're doing as wrong. Yeah, uh, and and in probably in most cases they don't see the extent of the damage. Yeah, like someone who's feeling it would. Um, but I don't think they're necessarily horrible people. I, don't, I think they just, you know, from my perspective, are misguided. Yeah. But, but they're also, you know, they probably have a much more luxurious existence than I do. And I don't want that. I never really was striving for that. But I wouldn't mind some comfort and security. I have um, some family on my dad's side who has helped us a lot tremendously financially. And I mean, over the years, I mean, they paid for me to get braces, for example, wow. when I was 15. And, you That's know, cool. they're, they're, extraordinarily generous um having money for them has made i think certain things easier they can go on trips without having to budget things and whatever else and own their own homes and all of that but their life their lives are not easier in any way than my family really just as busy trying to Stay on top of things and stay on top of things and like you know feeling tragedies by stress and, and yeah anxieties and yeah all of the all, that still all the stuff is still there. Um, but it's just it is yeah. more easier to to just coast through things when when they're hard. I mean, not yeah. coast necessarily, but it seems like all of the things that could go wrong in a life are made worse by being impoverished you know like yeah, any, any bad think, thing that could happen yeah is going to be worse if you don't have the money to get through it. in this country for sure yeah. yeah some places you're you're okay you get you know the the, the welfare net will catch you yeah but not here there not are holes here. holes throughout intentionally cut holes in some some cases yeah 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 but so have you come are you at peace with how your mom past and what those years were like are you do you struggle with I mean do you feel like you did everything you could do and I feel like it was yes and I also feel like um it was kind of an honor to be able to take care of her in a way because she was such an extraordinary mom such an extraordinary mother it was my turn it was my turn to give back in that way um I am at peace with her dying um, I miss her so frigging much. Mm. Like, and I didn't expect to because I felt like she'd been dying for 10 years. But I was like, yeah. But I feel like she just sort of lives in my heart and mind and all around me now. Um, so, yeah. I think that's I true, by the way. I, yeah. I, just in general, I mean, I think that's what happens. And I, I speak to her. I ask for her advice. I ask for her counsel. Do you get uh, 
signs or responses yeah. or feelings? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Um, there you go. She's still um, there. She is. And I also, even at the beginning of Alzheimer's, when I missed her so much, because I, we would rely on each other so much for counsel, you know, mm-hmm. I would say, okay, you know, you're, you're 40. Like, she's taught you enough. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new in the conversations. There's a slight different twist. Right. What would she say to you? You wow. know, and if I sat with that, almost like a meditation, and sat and tried to say, what would Rosemary say? Wow, it I could hear it. You. Yeah, in her voice, probably. Yeah. Right? Yes, and the same thing. I was having really. I mean, I still am having this sort of difficult situation at work, and you know, I have her picture up in the ashes, like a little shrine to her, until I can take her ashes to Australia. And I looked over and I was like, Mom, what the fuck am I going to do about this? You know, and I could just hear her say, you wouldn't want to be that person. Just be thankful you are not that person. Hmm. And, um, you know. The person you're having difficulty with. Yeah. And just like equanimity, you know, like acknowledge the difficulty and let it move on. Wow. And, you know. That's awesome. It's pretty great to have have that sort of built in yeah. you know moral support and uh, and morality support yeah she's yeah she she is a gift that keeps on giving i mean my friends too I, she just her network was so wide so she had a massive fan club um <laughs> that people just she changed their lives you know wow beautiful it is good mom yeah, so when you see the images of me, Instagram or otherwise, of me throwing my arms up in the air, that's her. Like, I'm harnessing her okay. her energy because that's how she was, arms out to life. Wow. You know. That's good to know. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, good for you for picking her out of the cosmos to be your mom. I know. I'm so lucky. It's pretty, yeah. pretty. And it sounds like your dad's a swell guy, too. He's amazing. Yeah. He's totally amazing. And... um. You did really well in the mom department as well. I sure did. Yeah. yeah. I'm 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 incredibly grateful. Yeah. All the time. I I mean I appreciate her more all the time. And yeah. I and I feel like I have since the beginning, but it yeah. just keeps growing. And she's like, "Wow." Well, I, ever since I've known you, you have loved your mom. Wow. Yeah. Um without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean I just owe her so much in terms of my own personal growth and the her capacity to hold the differences between yeah. us and yeah. let me be you know she yeah. I think she was worried about me she was scared of the kind of kid that I was yeah because I just wanted to, uh, I gotta go climb yeah. a tree or I gotta yeah. you know I just I wasn't like super hyperactive or um or a bad kid or anything I just was driven to do I needed yeah. firsthand evidence of everything you yeah know? So, and she isn't really like that. So she's more trepidatious and she was concerned about my welfare, but always with love and always with positive encouragement, yeah. you know, and to go, to be curious, as you said earlier. Yeah. 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 It's pretty amazing. Um, and it, and it sets you up differently in life to have a, a mom like that, you know, a mom who, you know, has your back and loves yeah. you. Yeah, and would tell you like when you were being an ass, 
that's, to cut the bullshit. Yeah, that's whatever. incredible like, too. Tough as well. Yeah, you know, like super loving, but also just straight. open line of communication. Yeah. That's that's key. That's what yeah. made all the difference for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything you didn't talk about that you wish that you had or would like to? I don't think so. Yeah, covered. I mean, how do you compress everything you think into? You can't. You can't. I'm not trying to get it. No, and it's, it's, um, I mean, it's evolving, right? Mm -hmm. It's always changing, evolving. But I really enjoyed talking with you. Me too. Thanks so much. And our canoe trip. I'm so grateful that 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 was a part of this whole thing, was to be able to come into the beauty. And a dip in the Russian River. I know. We swam today. That's (laughs) a good job. Yeah. Accomplishment. Uh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you and your everything, uh, the, you, all the Justin. years we've known each other. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk again. Shortly. Like in three seconds. Like two seconds. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Katya. Thank you. Bye. listening everybody that was my friend Katya Crawford Um, and thank you again Katya for a really nice time hanging out and for sharing parts of your life Um, as with every guest there's always so much more that we could talk about Uh, so it ends up just being a little slice but um I think we covered some good ground and yeah it was really nice so I'm happy to be back I'm sorry for the long absence um, and the lack of communication I've just been trying to get some things in order in my life and um, it's been challenging lately as it has for many many people I know Uh, So if you're one of those, I wish you well. I send you love. And uh, all all the goodness, all good things. Um, I'm going to put a link in the notes of this episode uh, to a TED Talk that Katya did. It's just a short, I think, 10 minutes or so. Um, And... You can check that out. I mean, it's it's not you're not able to find it anywhere else, but um, but the link. So I'm going to put it in the notes, which you can find on iliapod.com. I l y a pod.com. And uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? Oh, if you would like to support me and the show and basically just all the creative stuff that I do it's not really just the podcast because I like to make art and music and who knows what else but um, if you feel like supporting that you can go over to patreon.com slash I love you anyway and uh, yeah a couple of different tiers there that you could become a member at which you could become a member and then I will give you things in return 
but I'm coming back, y'all. It's good to be back. I love you. Talk to you soon. Bye.